welcome to the Let's Talk EMDR podcast brought to you by the EMDR International Association, or EMDRIA. I am your host, Kim Howard. In this episode, we are talking with EMDR certified therapist, Dr. Paul Miller, about EMDR, complex trauma, and PTSD. All is located in Newtown Abbey, Northern Ireland. Let's get started. Today, we are speaking with EMDR certified therapist, Dr. Paul Miller, about EMDR therapy and complex trauma. Dr. Miller is a medical doctor and a psychiatrist. Thank you, Paul, for being here today. We are so happy that you said yes. Thank you, Kim. I'm delighted to be here and really looking forward to having a conversation together. Thank you. So, Paul, tell us a little bit about your journey to becoming an EMDR therapist. <laughs> That's a very interesting journey. Well, well, first of all, my journey started uh, back in 1997, and I was trained as part of a HAP training uh, which was the first training in Northern Ireland. Really, at that stage, it was a humanitarian training, which I think was very significant for me, but also it was taking place uh, in the city where I was born and grew up, up in Derry, Londonderry. And that is a place that had seen a lot of violence over the years. And so for me, there was something very symbolic about it, where it was and the opportunity to take part in a humanitarian training. To be honest, also a big reason I went was to just be able to see family and travel down as a quite a junior doctor at that stage. So it was, I can't say that I knew tons about EMDR at that stage when I first trained, but I think the reason why I'm still doing EMDR over 25 years later was that that journey continued. And firstly, I found lots of really open-hearted people within the EMDR community who responded to emails of somebody who, you know, I was quite a junior psychiatrist at that stage. And, you know, people like Andrew Leeds, Francine, Carl Forgash, Jim Knight, Mark Dworkin. I mean, loads of people who were prepared to sit down and write an answer and help out somebody across the pond. So I was very struck by the kindness of many of those individuals. And there are many others that, that I could continue to mention. Marlon Luber is another one that comes to mind. So, you know, a lot of those individuals for me helped me to lean into learning something which is very new and also encouraged me. And so the person, the, the my mentor then at that time, uh, worked in the Matter Hospital in Belfast. It was a, a doctor called Dr. Peter Curran. And Peter, in the hospital where Peter and I worked, one third of all the people killed during the Troubles and one third of all the people uh, injured during the Troubles were in the five postal codes around that hospital. So it had really seen a lot of trauma. And as a student, I'd been in proximity to two of some two of the biggest sort of heinous crimes of the troubles through the Shankle bomb where many people were killed, civilians, and then a reprisal from the Protestant paramilitaries in the Rising Sun Bar in Grey Steel. And I saw the sort of mental health response and the primary care physician response to those disasters. And I suppose I have to also say my mother was a mental health nurse. So I sort of had an interest in mental health. I had an interest of seeing trauma and the impact of trauma. And I found a mentor and mentors, primarily, I suppose, Dr. Peter Curran. And then Dr. Michael Curran was the one who invited me to the training in Derry. It just made me see mental health and trauma. And actually, a trauma-based model made a lot of sense um, to me in terms of understanding how people present. Now, I have to say that that in itself was a bit of a journey because I started, I worked under Professor Kenneth Candler from uh, Virginia Commonwealth University and was part of the team that looked at the genetics of schizophrenia and per outcome schizoaffective disorder. Uh, and indeed, our team, the, the team that analyzed the data we collected, went on to identify the first gene of risk for schizophrenia. So I had those two sorts of parts of my lived experience as a medical doctor that there was this sort of spectrum and that there was a very biological part of the spectrum and I had experience in looking at that and I, identifying genes of risk. But increasingly, I was discovering the literature and the narrative around trauma. And so for me, it was being confronted by really how ineffective many of the medications were. But at that stage, cognitive behavioral psychotherapies were increasing there wasn't so much psychodynamic work 
And then EMDR was something that then came into my lived experience as a professional. So gradually applying it and really seeing people get better, seeing people improve. Uh, and that's what really led me then into that journey with EMDR. My interest then was uh, I'm duly trained as an old age psychiatrist who's specializing in later life mental health and also then as a general adult, which is really anything from the age of 16 years of age upwards. And so I would see a wide range of people. And to me, the trauma model, EMDR, and then seeing the effects of that, to me, was just that nice um, mix where it was a very satisfying professional place to work. And uh, I found that I was able to then bring that initially to the National Health Service and set up a number of clinics uh, in the National Health Service and then moved into the private sector and have gone on now to develop the Morabolous Health Institute, which I founded, which has a role really in training. So I'm an EMDR Europe trainer, so we, myself and a faculty of trainers here train other people. And then linked with colleagues like Professor Derek Farrell, Professor Matt Kiernan, uh, Lorraine Nibs. We've, there's a group of us then working together, um, looking at doing research. So I'm a visiting professor in Ulster University as part of the Maternal Fetal Infant Research Centre there. And actually, some of we currently have three PhDs that all have an EMDR focus. Now, two are in the process of finishing, hopefully, very soon. And we have a third that's more or less just starting. But a big part of that, again, has been really following through what Francine always talked about, which is gathering the data, publishing in peer-reviewed journals and for me, having started with a very biological view of mental illness with schizophrenia, I discovered EMDR first of all, and then discovered really Colin Ross's work. And so Colin talked a lot about the a different model for schizophrenia, which really looked at a trauma model. And some work was then carried out in Northern Ireland. And what it showed was that when individuals had three traumas before the age of 18, the risk of a pathology level psychosis, so like schizophrenia, was increased by 18 times. So pretty significant. Yeah. But if it was two more traumas added to the burden before the age of 18, so if you had five traumas before the age of 18, that risk went up to 193 times. Wow. That's incredible. So it was incredible. And if you think if that was smoking or if that was eating some particular unhealthy substance or exposing yourself to um, you know, certain amounts of alcohol, let's say, you can imagine the public outcry and the public health outcry. But because it was trauma, we just never saw that. So that always challenged me to look at that and getting involved with colleagues working in the humanitarian side of EMDR, but also realizing there's just so much stuff we still did not understand. And I think one of the really nice things was that as I spoke to people like, for example, Uri Bergman, uh, who was a great encouragement around the neurobiology, that as we began to discover more stuff about neurobiology, it was just lovely to see how that fitted so well with actually the model that Francine had created and that we were taking something that somebody as a clinician who was attuned had picked up on that this was a sensible way of doing EMDR. This made sense to make the eight phases in this sequence with the procedural steps in this sequence. And it just amazed me how we were beginning to see, look, that makes sense from what we know about the neurobiology. So there's still loads that we don't understand, I think, and it's always good to acknowledge that. But I think that in the end of the day, certainly as a specialist working with a lot of complex trauma, seeing how EMDR can have a substantial impact on those individuals is really, really important. That's why I still do it. That's a, that's a great story. And I like the intersection. We talked about this earlier, the intersection of your, your medical degree and your work as a psychiatrist melding with your work as a as an EMDR therapist, it just seems like the perfect trifecta. I mean, not everyone can go out and get a medical degree and be a doctor and then turn around and, and become a psychiatrist as well. So uh, there's that. But I think it's a great intersection because you've, you know, who do you go to first when you have a problem? You go to your medical doctor, right? It's something physical. I have this issue or whatever. And then you discover, oh, maybe I need therapy. You know, so you might go to a psychiatrist or a, th- a therapist. And so it's a, it's a great combination. Not everyone has that that option, but I love the fact that 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 that's how you do your your job. So yeah, I mean, I mean, I've definitely been very blessed about it, and I think working in old age psychiatry, I think we always had a lot of multidisciplinary teams. Even whenever our general psychiatrist colleagues did not, 
And I think that's the thing that I've gone on to build a unit that has a has a multidisciplinary team element to it. And it's really, I think, important because what we're finding at the moment is there are a lot of very exciting things coming down the line, which is important for the people that we see. I tend to do a lot of blue light work. So I work with a lot of law enforcement. I do a lot of work with those who are frontline workers and first responders, and then also individuals who have complex trauma from childhood sexual abuse and, and other abuses. And you know, one of the things that I often find is that the services out there don't involve a range of professionals enough. And, you know, I think that whilst it's nice to have a combination of sort of the medical side and then the the psychotherapeutic EMDR side, I welcome having colleagues who are also, you know, trained in CBT, um, trained in different psychodynamic therapies, a number of mental health nurses who have years of experience. And um, my my daughter has actually just qualified as a mental health nurse. She doesn't work for me at the minute, but uh, I'm not sure if she quite want to work with dad quite yet. But, <laughs> but uh, it was quite funny because one of the things that she was in the cohort that I train just before they get registered, I do an introductory training for the mental health nurses. So she had to listen to dad do a training. Um, but she didn't complain too much about that. But I think it's a wonderful skill to have because I think we have so many people coming. Medication I've always looked upon as a bit of a fertilizer. The medication helps to make the wheels turn. Sometimes it helps them to turn at all. Sometimes it helps them to turn more smoothly. And I think the difficulty that I see as a medical doctor is a lot of people, because there hasn't been the availability of psychotherapeutic endeavor, the problem is that all people have been given is medication and, you know, it's what's available. It can help people. But in my experience, people generally need a range of different things. Um, and I think that's why for my clinic now, we're looking at New Year things. So we partner with the Vermont Centre for Responder Wellness with Sonny Provetto and his team. And so we look at being able to train peer responders training them in in group EMDR methods to help them with EMDR early intervention work. So there's a less toxicity, hopefully, from the burden of trauma early on. We look at things that are coming down the pipeline, like the effectiveness of the stellate ganglion block. So it's like a physical procedure where you inject a local anesthetic into the neck, into a thing called the stellate ganglion. But what it does is it it helps to downregulate the amygdala. Usually it's only done on the right-hand side. And so again, my clinic here is benefiting from that connection professionally with Sunny's team in Vermont. And so we're we're able to bring those new innovations and see them at place. And we were talking just before about now bringing on board then we've just been licensed as a psychedelic research center. So we're starting to look at that as well. And I think the thing that really excites me is when we listen to people like Rachel Yehuda, um, Rachel and people like Rick Doblin of MAPS, they, they emphasize that it's not just about taking the psychedelic and that makes you better, but the importance of having that psychotherapeutic endeavor with it as well. And I think that's so important and seeing that's really exciting for me. And it's interesting. I hear a number of EMDR clinicians who have then been taking additional training as psychedelic psychotherapists and stuff. So I think it's an exciting place to be. Um, I think that it's something that allows us to offer hope to the people that we have who often for a center like mine are coming through our door saying you're my last chance. And I think that's saddened when I hear that. And I often think that's also not true because I think it's sometimes people aren't being able to be offered things when they ought to be offered them. And they end up going through maybe a series of medications and they tell themselves a story why failed to get better on all these medications. Therefore, I must be on, you know, untreatable. That's not true. It's just simply maybe the sequence has been wrong or maybe the medication was okay, but it needed the psychotherapeutic at that time and that wasn't available. So there's a lot of those things I think we're learning. And I think the EMDR community is growing up and, and is developing in terms of how it looks at conditions that once upon we had the medical model of illness. And a question that Colin Ross and I have often heard asked is, you know, is this psychosis or is this dissociation or is this complex trauma? And I think phenomenologically, a lot of the time these things are the same thing. And so it's about looking at the trauma model and, and the beauty of the AIP model, as articulated by Francine and Roger Solomon, it wasn't just about that being 
something which explained the medical model. Aha, this explains why you've got depression or this explains why you've got post-traumatic stress disorder. The, the trauma model, as I understand it, as I hear Dr. Colin Ross articulate it, is that it's a way of helping people to understand that you are understandably disordered given the set of extreme circumstances you've been through. This is not because you've just been unlucky with a hand of genes that you've been given. This is understandable. And and what's more so, not only is it understandable, it's that it that allows it to be remediable. And I think we have, you know, we're learning all the time about this stuff. And so that's what I'll always say to people. Look, you are where you are. Okay, maybe this is a good it gets for now. But you know, there's stuff coming down the pipeline. You know, there could be new stuff next week. And so I always remember Napoleon Bonaparte used to say of his generals that they were to be purveyors of hope. Uh it sounds a bit of a strange thing to say about military generals, but in a sense. That's how you describe them. But I think that's true. We're to, sometimes as therapists, we have to hold out hope for people. And I think that's a really beautiful thing to, to hold on to. And for me, that then begs the question, well, what is hope? And so there was a, a philosopher and politician who was the last president of Czechoslovakia, a man called Václav Havel. And he became the first president of the Czech Republic. Translation of what he said is basically... Hope is not the certainty that everything will turn out well. Rather, it's a sense that no matter how things turn out, that they have meaning. Hmm. And I think that's the beauty of the trauma model because none of us as clinicians can sit down and say, Kim, you're going to definitely get better. This will definitely completely heal you. Right. We can't say that. We, sh- we ought not to say that. But what we can say is we can say, Kim, this makes sense why you're experiencing this. And let me explain a bit about that. And I think that's a really powerful thing. And I think it encourages me that the EMDR community has elements within it that has asked that, why does this work? But I also think that it's also important that I see that the EMDR community has has pragmatic aspects within it that don't care how it works. They just know it does, so they deliver it. And I think both have a place. One of our presenters at our EMDR virtual summit Friday and Saturday, last weekend, and one of them gave a really good analogy, which I thought was really good and vivid and people can understand and relate to it. And she said, you know, your body is like a windshield and trauma, whether it's small trauma or large trauma or like rocks coming into your windshield, it might make a dent. It might make a line. It might crack it all the way. It might crack it in several places. It might break it completely. And I thought, wow, that's, that was really eye opening in terms of trying to get that information out there to the audience. I'd also like to comment on the fact that you said you had to give your, your daughter her introductory class. And so maybe she's at an age now where she finally says, oh my gosh, my father actually knows what he's talking about. Because you know how kids grow up and they never think their parents know anything when they're, when they're know teenagers. Yeah, they don't know anything, right? You could be the smartest person in the world and you know, you're my parent, you don't know much. And so that's interesting that, that, that you had yeah, to do that to... It's funny. I'm not sure she would admit it to me, but I think both my children, my son's a bit younger. He's doing cinematic arts, but I think they're both amazed that people pay to listen to me. Uh, <laughs> or in fact, amazed that people actually listen to me. <laughs> yes. Tell your children. Yes. Many people worldwide listen to you so. <laughs> before the podcast. <laughs> Paul, can you please define complex trauma? Yeah, I think this is a really important question because I think whenever I would have started off, even back in the late 90s, I would have been familiar with the conversation about complex trauma because really in in terms of the what we call the Northern Ireland Troubles, basically a, a, a period of over 30 years of terrorist violence, you know, pretty much every family was affected and impacted by that. You know, certainly we, we had loads of people where they had real difficulties in terms of uh, what they would do, could do. And they were also balancing their need for asking for help with, you know, Jane down the street, her son has just been murdered. So there was a lot of people who didn't feel that they could ask for help. So as opposed to sort of a more standard presentation with somebody having a, let's say, a road traffic collision, that there was a lot of people who sort of built up these more complex pictures that involved 
the interpersonal relationships that they had, that we saw sometimes two, three generations of people who had experienced trauma, you know, each generation having had somebody murdered in it, for example. And so we had these much more complex presentations. So people talked about more complicated pictures. I then began, as as I became aware, much more aware of dissociation, I began to see then people talking about complex trauma and defining it as post-traumatic stress and trauma that had a lot of dissociative elements to it. Uh, and really, when we look at the nosologies, the DSM sort of went down that pathway. And so DSM, with the publication of DSM-5, rather than include the diagnosis of complex PTSD, what they did was instead say, you can have a post-traumatic stress, but you can add this additional piece to it, which is really talking about there being a dissociative subtype to it that you can add as a writer to the to the classification. And so I think I began to think of the complex presentations and consider how dissociation linked to that. However, ICD-11, which is now the, the latest version that came out, it was really interesting to see it go in a different path. And so what it did was, well, first of all, it put the actual name in. So it said, right, we're going to define a thing and we're going to make the label complex post-traumatic stress disorder. And I think whatever you feel about the definitions, I think the bottom line is that having it written down somewhere can try and help harmonize the research. So DSM chose not to. They sort of added the ability to talk about dissociation, but ICD-11 made a specific definition. So I think with its publication, at least in beta in 2018, I think as traumatologists, we now need to to know that there is a definition to it. We may not necessarily always agree with it. Some people may think, no, I like my definition of complex trauma. But strictly speaking, what complex trauma now is your, your core post-traumatic stress disorder. But then in addition to that, you have one of one or more of the following. So Severe and pervasive problems in affect regulation. So, like we'll recognize that, you know, many of your listeners will recognize that in the patients that you have that they really have difficulty in regulating affect in, in even fairly neutral environments. Persistent beliefs about oneself as diminished, defeated, or worthless, often accompanied by deep and pervasive feelings of shame, guilt, or failure related to the traumatic event. And I think that's probably one of the biggest areas where I see it manifested in terms of the the Northern Ireland population. And then lastly, persistent difficulties in sustaining relationships and in being able to feel close to other people. And that those things then result in a substantial disability. So I I like that definition of complex PTSD because it really, it puts a nod towards the importance of the interpersonal. And I think when we look back and we listen to other researchers like Christine Courtois, Basil van der Kolk, of course, uh, Janina Fisher, the discussion about the impact and the interpersonal is really important. There's a rehabilitation psychiatrist who works in the UK called Tom Burns. And uh, Tom says, all mental illness has a common thread. It happens in the space between people. And the fascinating thing about that is that when we look at you know the neurobiology, so if we read Uri Bergman's synthesis of the area, if we look at the work of people like Yak Panksap, if we look at the work by people like Alan Shore, what we're hearing is maybe we need to stop focusing on the neurobiology of the individual and we need to think more about the neurobiology of the dynamic of the interpersonal. I think this is really important because we've talked as therapists about how important it was in regard to the discovery of mirror neurons and how we can pick up affect and emotional tone in others. But we know that as therapists, that we can pick that up. You know, somebody might say, I'm happy. Somebody might say, I'm okay. But we know that they're not. We can feel it. We experience it. It's not. And I think that when we begin to look at an interpersonal neurobiology, we begin to see that really very clearly. And I think I remember Eric Bergman as, you know, 15 years ago, I remember him saying if he could have persuaded Francine to add anything to the normal procedural steps of the standard model, he would have had her add people doing a constant body scan as the therapist. And, you know, that then links into, for me, 
working in psychosis and more complex disorders, we need to be really aware of that because it isn't sufficient to just stay out of the way. It isn't sufficient to just follow the protocol because these presentations are deeply interpersonal. There's a lot of issues about some of the thoughts that are held that do require more active interweave and more active positioning in terms of how we process, um, sometimes reversing some of the procedural steps and such like. So I think it's important. And I think the ICD-11 diagnosis and nosology that describes complex PTSD, I like that as a description because I think dissociation can be a part of it and can make a presentation complex, but it's not the only thing. And likewise, I also think that people can have multiple traumas and an attachment trauma but it doesn't necessarily describe the entirety of the complexity of the presentation. And I think ICD-10, or sorry, ICD-11 hasn't done too bad with that. But I think apart from anything else, we can begin to harmonize our research around it now because we have a description. It's a great answer. Thank you. You may have touched on this earlier, but what is your favorite part of working with EMDR and complex trauma? Oh, I think my favorite part is because it's so deeply relational. I think that, you know, working with complex trauma, first of all, it's it's helped me to connect to an international community of people who are doing this. And I think I love hearing how when, when I'm working with somebody as an individual, first of all, I love seeing things change that maybe a person's been stuck on for a long time. So I still can be amazed by what miracles a person's own neurobiology can achieve. And I love the fact that there is that really interpersonal piece to it, which really is is very present. I think to, to settle aside that, I think it's also important to mention that that's why I think it's so deeply important that we do our own work, because I think that's, you know, we're not a clean screen. We don't see clearly if we don't, you know, do our own work. And I think that's really important. And and I think that isn't just about getting EMDR. I think that's about doing lots of work. But I think when we do our own work, I think it helps us to be better therapists. Um, but it also protects us from being burnt out. The thing I'm very conscious of is at this stage in my professional career, I've been working in trauma for over. 25 years now, but I've been working and treating trauma in a society that is still emerging from trauma. I tell the story as an illustration that we are about now, I think, 1.7 million people in Northern Ireland. And I remember sitting one day working with a police officer and he was talking about his trauma. And he talked about how he and his two colleagues either side of him were approaching a car that looked like there was a body in. And as they approached the car, they blew up the car. And mm. his two, he came around and he was still standing, but the blast wave had killed his two colleagues either side of him. And he talked about it as just this mighty rushing wind, as he talked about. But as he was describing it, about halfway through his session, I realized that he was describing the murder of somebody I knew and played in a band with. And you can't prepare for that. And yet, with such a small society, that type of thing, you know, potentially is not uncommon. And so it's about making sure that, you know, we don't pretend that we then as therapists are some sort of superhero and don't need to do our own work, but that we we help people to understand that we do need to do our own work. There are two windows of tolerance in therapy, the therapist's window of tolerance and the client's window of tolerance. And it is important that we attend to both of them. So all of that sort of stuff, I think the... Being able to get into that space and work safely in it is what excites me about complex trauma. And I think what I love now is that I'm in a place where I'm able to teach others to do that. Um, towards the, the sort of latter part of his career, he used to talk about him as the wizard in the desert. He used to talk about he had stopped doing as much therapy and had focused a lot more on teaching. And I said, you know, well, why have you done that? And he said, because... I can treat six people today, but I can teach 30 people today who can all go out and see six people tomorrow. And so I think for me, the, the building it, the research and then sharing 
the training and teaching, I think, is that is what really excites me working with complex trauma now. Because for me, I've always been struck by, I started to train initially in surgery and then switched over to psychiatry. And, you know, I was amazed that during the troubles, we had like international centers of excellence around plastic surgery because we were having to deal with with bomb injuries and explosions. We had to develop specialist skills around respiratory medicine because of conditions like blast lung. But yet in terms of mental health, we weren't that just didn't happen. And so I think I sort of feel the importance now at this stage of really curating and bringing together and then teaching what we've learned in terms of treating with complex trauma because we've had over 30 years of that and i think there's been a there's a massive amount of learning and, and there's some brilliant work that's been undertaken and i think it's important that we, we we share that you know and so that i think is what excites me about complex trauma now that we are in a place where we have things which are valuable and can be shared and we have the opportunity for example in a relatively small place, we have two universities and we have EMDR-focused PhD running in the, both those universities. We have EMDR being taught at different levels within a, the Advanced Nurse Practitioner Master's program. We teach EMDR uh, in Ulster University. And so that, that I think is really exciting because it's we're starting to expose people to think about EMDR and about how we can help with complex trauma, but we're also not saying that it is the only thing. Because I think whenever I trained, I always remember Roger Solomon saying, EMDR is an integrative psychotherapy. And I've always found that to be so. And I think being able to integrate it with the skill set that people have, because often the people I'm training are people who've been, you know, therapists, counselors, psychologists for 20 years. So it's like saying that I don't want you to throw all that 20 years away. This is this is building on that, standing on that experience, integrating and learning from it. And I think that's one of the really most powerful things about EMDR because it is that. And so I think that there's a responsibility for those of us who work in this area that we do record stuff, that we do publish it and talk about it. And, you know, small things are not trivial. Right. Um, they making a difference. But then teaching people about that, it's incredible what, what good that can bring about. And I think that's the sort of community I want us to have. That's a good answer. And I like the trainer or professor or whoever he was, the gentleman who you couldn't name about how he can impact six people today in his own practice, but he can teach 30 and then they can go out and impact six people each in their practice. And so it spreads the, the good word, you know, and so the good news about, hey, this is this is an option for you. And we've talked about this on this podcast before and within the pages of the magazine as well, that EMDR therapy is is an option for people. Uh, we happen to, I mean, we're embryos, so we think it's the bee's knees, right? We think it's the best out there. Yeah. But as therapists, you're really, your, your jobs are really to figure out what works best for your clients. You know, they come into you and then you have to sort of put it together, you know, whatever the treatment plan is. And it might involve EMDR therapy. It may involve EMDR therapy and other things. And so you have the freedom as a clinician to, to do that with your, with your clients. And I think that that really benefits people who are coming. I, I, I couldn't agree more because I think the thing is that when we, you know, like I've, I've trained people who are, for example, from a psychodynamic background and they've looked at EMDR and they'll have said things like, oh yeah, well, that's like, you know, that's free association. <laughs> Or, yeah, well, what you're really doing there, this is just a different way of looking at projection and transference. And yet you'll have people who come from a cognitive behavioral background and they will see it through their lens of CBT. Um, like, you know, there's, so we bring the lens that we've really been trained in. But I think a lot of these things, I remember at the Evolution of Psychotherapy conference that I went to, you know, a lot of the experts there, so there are people like I'd, I'd gone in particular to hear Irving Yalom speak. Uh, and, you know, he talked about how, well, look, we're just describing, it's like the, the person in the room describing the elephant in the dark. We're just describing different parts of the same system. And sometimes it's just the differences, names, brands. And I think that's the bit that I think we need to come together to be able to talk about. Because I think whenever we do that, we can build together instead of, you know, in a sense, getting into silly competitions and fights with each other. Because I think in my experience, particularly with complex trauma, all of these things that we know work, I see all of them often 
being necessary for a person um, who's on that journey. And it's rarely the case of the only needed trauma-focused CBT or the only needed medication or the only needed EMDR. It's rarely the case, you know. All right. Yeah, absolutely. That's a good segue to my next question, which is what successes have you seen using EMDR therapy with complex trauma? Well, I think what I would say would be there's definitely one group of complex trauma cases that I have. If we look at the complex trauma cases who were having presentations that were being labeled as psychosis or schizophrenia, I think I have to go back to the, the first one I described in, in my book here called Janus. Janus uh, is the, the god of beginnings and endings, and I, I called him that because for me, it really was the beginning and ending of, of a couple of paradigms. For me, it was the end of a paradigm where I thought there was this very biological illness called schizophrenia and psychosis that needed medicine and was just about your bad genes. And it was the start of being able to see that by doing psychotherapeutic work using EMDR, by treating a person's trauma burden, that actually we could make things like psychosis better. And so I think for me, Janus has to be right up there at the top. I still see him and, and meet up with him. And one of the biggest challenges around schizophrenia is knowing what schizophrenia is because it's so vague. It's like cough syndrome. Okay. So one of the things when working with Professor Kenneth Candler was the importance of getting the phenomenology right. So if you're talking about schizophrenia and I am talking about schizophrenia, we need to make sure that we are actually talking about the same thing. Okay. So in the time point where we were doing the research, it was using DSM a 3R. And it was really the tightest definition of schizophrenia and of schizoaffective disorder was felt to be phenomenologically the same thing. And what we did was then had a really tight diagnosis. And it was what allowed for the identification of the first gene of risk. So it was a really tight definition. And the reason why I'm emphasizing this so much is I've given talks and talked about my patient with schizophrenia who I've treated. I've treated others subsequent, but he was my first. And Often you may get somebody who will say something along the lines of, which is basically, but he didn't really have schizophrenia. I don't think he really had schizophrenia. Mm -hmm. And that's why I emphasize the point that in terms of genetic work, we really were very clear. And this guy met all those criteria of people that we included in our genetic study. So this guy definitely met all the criteria for schizophrenia. But yet he is now a number of years down the line working back at work again in a professional job and, and doing very well. And he's contented now. He's not entirely symptom-free, but I think that's one of the things that I learned. I think when I look at the work with people who exist as multiples in DID, we used to look back at Rick Clough's criteria where success was unity, one single entity, um, one driver in the driving seat. But actually increasingly, I've seen that that's one, not always attainable, and two, not always desirable. And so I published a chapter in a book recently that Marius Rom had helped to bring together. I remember one of the things that, so Marius Rom and his wife, Sandra Escher, set up the Hearing Voices Networks. And one of the things that Marius talks about is the importance of, traditionally, we have on the one hand, a person who hears voices and is mad, crazy, whatever. And on the other hand, we have a person who does not hear voices and they are well. But his big invitation is we need to actually think that there's a third way, that there are well people who hear voices. And so I think how we look at complex trauma and how whenever I think about Janus as the first patient that, that I experienced who met those criteria, actually being able to see how he was able to take control of his life again, mm -hmm. increase his utility, but also define himself and not be defined by what allegedly is this thing called normal. Right. somewhere else. And so that I think is very exciting to me. So he he's always right there at the top. And I think that if I think of a recent patient who is somebody that I've now been treating and working with for over 16 years, it first of all reminds me that, yeah, we can maybe work really quickly with trauma, but there are some people who need ongoing therapeutic endeavor. And and with this individual, recently we've we've used a stellate ganglion block, uh, which has really helped with their window of tolerance. And I'm hoping it'll allow us to do a bit more trauma 
trauma work going forward. But the reality is for that individual, working with EMDR is a part of their overall plan with a stellate ganglion block. The things that I love to hear that still excite me about EMDR is this person who has had a terrible history of, of sex abuse within their family of origin, be able to just send me a text and say, not my blame, not my shame. And I think as therapists, when we are party to something so intimate as a profound change like that, I just think it's a beautiful thing to still be able to be involved in. And I think so. I think those are two, one from earlier on in my career and one from more recently. And I think those are the sorts of things where we see real change. And I think it comes back to the hope piece again. I think that's that they're just very powerful things that we still have the opportunity to be exposed to. I think it's amazing the work that you all do as therapists and whether you're a psychologist or a psychiatrist or not, that the fact that you guys are literally changing people's lives. I mean, if Yanis had not come to you, who knows what his life will be like 15 years later, right? Fifteen years. And so the fact that people are getting some kind of resolution in a therapist chair or in a group therapy chair, and they're able to go on and be productive in their lives and be happier about their lives and manage the past history and the trauma in a way that makes them healthy and not destructive is to me an amazing calling. To me, it's just so beautiful. I'm just in awe of people who do that kind of work. Cause like I say, you're literally changing lives. I mean, what, what better calling could there be than that other than saving someone's life? And you, you really are in a sense, you maybe not physically, you know, in an operating room after an accident or removing a cancer, but you're literally saving somebody's life. It's, it's beautiful work. So thank you for doing it. Oh, thank you. I mean, it's, to me, it's, it's one of my German friends used to talk about when he was going for his own personal therapy and he would, he used to say, I'm going to make therapy now. Uh, and I, lo- I love that because I thought like, yeah, you are. It is something you're making. It's just not something you're going for somebody to like deliver to you. And I think that's, to me, that's a really important thing that I think we continue to keep in our mind that, yeah, I mean, ultimately, I do a lot of work around perinatal care and I've trained a group of midwives in terms of some of the group EMDR interventions and they are brilliant at delivering them. But one of the things that I'm often reminded about is that image of the midwife, you know, and I I think of Phyllis Klaus's work and Marshall, of course, as well. He's no longer with us. But if we think about that perinatal work, I think the midwifery model or the doula is really applicable to us as therapists because we are not there to give birth. We're there to facilitate the birth. And I think we're a very important part. The midwives, the doulas, you know, the OBGYNs are very important parts of the clinical team, but none of them are going to give birth. Okay. It's the birthing person is there to give birth. And so in that sense, I think we're like that, that we're there to be this really, yeah, really important role, really essential role, but we are not giving birth, but we are an important part of the team. And I think that's a lovely thing. It is. So you touched on this a little bit earlier, but are there any myths that you would like to bust about EMDR therapy and complex trauma? Oh my God. Pardon my French. Uh, (laughs) So many, so little time, right? Well, I think the biggest myth that I'd love to, to get rid of is if we look at schizophrenia as a really complex trauma, okay? I think the most important thing is to try and help people to move away from this question, which I think the EMDR world is obsessed with, which is what is the protocol for? I think that's that's one of the things I'd love to move away from. As part of uh, the, the, the really wonderful honor of being a part of the Council of Scholars, as a part of that, one of the things involves some research that that I was part of the training and credentialing team, but one of the other teams who was looking at what is EMDR included Marlon Luber. And Marlon looked at the descriptive protocols that, that she's gathered together and curated, which are a wonderful resource. But one of the things that really Marlon was able to say as well was that really what these are are exceptional case conceptualizations. That that's that's the important aspect of those things. Because I think it was over 90% are the standard protocol. When you look at what the actual protocol is, the protocol is the standard protocol. And I think that's really important. I think Marlon's books are wonderful because they talk about the the case conceptualization aspect. And I think that's really important. But I think that whenever we look at 
EMDR and complex trauma, there is not going to be a complex trauma protocol. Because one of my fellow trainers in Ireland here, Gus Murray, talks about um, EMDR is as simple as chess. And, and EMDR is as simple as chess. There's lots of simple procedural steps in it. But how you put those together, you can put them together as me playing chess, or you can put them together as the grandmaster. So there's lots of different things that I think I want to say, stop worrying about the protocol. You've got the standard protocol. And I teach my students and mentees two things that I want them to know. I want them to know the standard protocol so they know when they're deviating from it. And if they deviate from it, I want them to know why they're deviating from it. And if they can do both of those things, I'm happy. And the, the rest of it then is about the case conceptualization. And I think the you know that's where I want to invite people to see Marlin scripted protocols, that that's the beauty of, and that's the secret sauce. It's not following something blindly. I think there are... The more highly scripted protocols like Ilan Shapiro's work with GTAP, Nacho Herrera and Lucy Artegas with IGTP, RTAP, again, Ilan Shapiro, and then more recently, ASAP, which I've developed alongside with Sonny Prevetto and Professor Derek Farrell. There are very highly scripted protocols, which do have a place as well as well and that's really good but i think for the average psychotherapist using emdr it's about bringing your skills of case conceptualization and then looking at how you apply emdr to that and not feeling disempowered because you don't know a specific protocol for whatever because i think more often that leaves therapists feeling disempowered as opposed to empowered good answer thank you paul are there specific complexities or difficulties with using emdr therapy for this population I think without really going too deeply into the dissociation, I think we can't talk about trauma and not think about dissociation. I, I think, you know, I know Ad de Jong talks about this and I've heard Ricky Greenwald talking about it and emphasizing it as well. You've got to remember that trauma in and of itself is a dissociative force. So by treating the trauma, we should reduce levels of dissociation and stuff. But I do think that we have to be very mindful of dissociation. I think it's really important. And I think that looking at the overall complexity of the, the presentation, something that I have found helpful is superimposing on that model that we have of AIP and dissociation and the trauma model, but superimposing the work of Dr. Ian McGilchrist. Now, Ian is a psychiatrist. He lives and works in Scotland now. He's a philosopher, thinker. He's just an amazing guy. But he wrote a book many years ago called The Master and His Emissary. And in The Master and His Emissary, he talked about really the relationship between our right hemisphere view of the world and our left hemisphere view of the world. And he then developed that in his recent book, which he's published now in two volumes called The Matter with Things. I mean, he's just an exceptional thinker. He reminds me a bit of what one of my mentors used to say. When you listen to Ian it's a bit like trying to take a sip of water from a fire hydrant. It's, you know, it's there's a lot there. But I think that if we look at it in a sort of the way that I think of it in terms of complex trauma, information is getting relayed up in terms of from sort of the, the ground floor to the top floor. But the building, our brain, central nervous system, also has a, a, a west wing and an east wing. So the information is coming up into the right hemisphere. And the right hemisphere is the hemisphere that is aware that we are who we are. And it's sometimes referred to as the silent hemisphere because the word selection centers are mostly in the left hemisphere. And Ian McGilchrist talks about the function of the right hemisphere is presencing. So it's where you are present. Okay. And it's made up of what he refers to using the German term gestalten. So irreducible sense of being. Okay. And the information starts there and then it gets relayed across to the left hemisphere. And in the left hemisphere, left hemisphere is where we largely grasp things. It's where tool control is. It's where specific word finding is. But it's where the world is broken down into its con constituent parts and labeled and grasped. So it is an assembly of parts, but essentially dead. So what we have is a right hemisphere presencing living. So let's use an example of it's your experience of connection with the divine. So it's alive. It's, it's ineffable. It's hard to describe, impossible to describe, but yet the experience is profound at every level. But yet in the left hemisphere, we could break down a description and a theology and an orthodoxy and a theory of the divine. 
but it would be a very pale reflection of what the divine is. So the information then needs to go back to the right hemisphere. So we take a thing apart and in the left hemisphere, it is re-presented. Our brain then shuffles it and moves it about. And I think when I look at complex trauma, there is some of the work that we do, I think largely within the standard protocol and within the procedural steps that we're going in and we're working with things in a left hemisphere way. We are getting the journey from the negative cognition to the positive cognition. And we're then installing and linking that into the other functional adaptive networks. But I also think that there is a part of us that for really complex trauma that is without language, it's work that needs to be done in a right hemisphere way. So it's not so much about negative positive cognition, and it's not so much about breaking things down and trying to model them, but it's just about being with them and really helping them to process, move and shift. So I attempted to bring that understanding when I when I wrote the book around schizophrenia, which is really also really a book for complex trauma, but I tried to put together a model for case conceptualization, which I called the ICON model. And so the ICON model, spelled I-C-O-N-N, basically stands for indicating cognitions of negative networks. But I really wanted to use the word ICON because mostly nowadays, you and I think of an ICON, we think of the symbol that relates to a piece of software on our phone. So we look at it, we pick it up, we see a blue square that has, you know, triangles on it in white. Well, most of us will have already guessed, well, that's my email app. Okay. But that icon, that picture is not the program that runs it. It's a symbol that links to it. And so the icons that we experience, the person as they present themselves to us, that's an icon. And so that's what we want to pay attention to. And so in some, in icon one, the person can tell you what it is. I was run over by a red car. I'm terrified by red cars and I don't want to go out and I won't walk along that road anymore. We know what our target is going to be. And that's an icon one standard model. Icon two is where the person may not be so clear about it. Okay. So a colleague gave me the example of a patient came in and said, I'm afraid of Christmas. Now, many of us may not like holidays, and but for somebody to say they're afraid of Christmas seems a bit strange. So the therapist, again, really following the affect, what I teach is, you know, where's the ouch? So he said, well, what bit of Christmas are you most afraid of? They said, well, I'm most afraid of Christmas cakes. Now, again, that doesn't make an awful lot of sense to us. But using then a tool, which I think is a really, really important tool in complex trauma, and that's the float back or the affect bridge. So the therapist floated back using the fear of Christmas cake. And the person said it's specifically the smell. So it's it's the smell of the marzipan. And actually then what the therapist was able to do, float back again, and marzipan is the smell left in the air after Semtex explodes. So mm. this was a person that had been involved in a bomb when they were younger, but hadn't thought this is what they're afraid of. So they weren't actually afraid of Christmas. They were smelling this smell that their brain was saying, there's a bomb. Oh my gosh. And that's what they're afraid of. So by using wow. Icon 2 and using Floatback, it allows us to, to arrive to a target that we can then process. And again, you're using a standard model. Now, the other two cases then that you sort of tend to see in terms of complex trauma, PTSD sort of type presentations that I was trying to think about case conceptualization of who was coming to my clinic. And so there's one group then who have heard voices that can invo- can be engaged in dialogue. And so that's ICON3. So the work that you're doing is working with the voices the bilateral stimulation of EMDR, I see as being pro-parasympathetic, so it improves emotional containment and the window of tolerance. And so then you're going to then use a method of working with parts. And that could include things like, so for me, I like the work of Hal and Sidra Stone because it's a, using a non-pathologizing language. But likewise, there's lots of other models out there. The first person I remember talking about this was Carl Forgash, about that you could use it in working with parts. But there's loads of other people that I've heard talk about it too. Other works that out there, of course, we have the structural dissociation model of the personality. You could even go right back to classical Jungian models and active imagination. So the, the key thing is that there's a way to work with parts that actually then deals with the trauma. But there's still a group of people that are left with sometimes 
these multimodal psychotic or dissociative experiences that they can't quite say this is the worst part. The whole thing is the worst part. And for me, that maps onto a right hemisphere piece that is stuck right hemisphere. It's There is no specific language for it. You could waste half of your therapy session trying to find a language for the negative cognition. But if you can feel it, you can heal it. So if the person has that gestalt, and if they can feel it and they can locate that in the body, then you can work on it. And that's an icon for So using that model as a way to help people to deal with trauma, mapping into now what I think Ian McGilchrist has gone on to describe in massive detail, the evidence that we have these two hemispheric views of the world around us, I think really enriches our models and none of it needs a protocol. There you go. How do you practice cultural humility as an EMDR therapist? Well, I think for me, it's first of all, being very intentional about it. So I'm aware of it. For me, where I saw it recently, because I'm I'm really fortunate to have wonderful supervisees from around the world. And so I constantly learn from them. And I suppose one of the phrases I always remember uh, Irving Yalom saying is, let your patient be your teacher. And so I think it's being open to learning and, and being open to see that the way we see things isn't necessarily always correct and that we have our own cultural blind spots. And I think recently I was reminded in one of, by one of my supervisees about talking about the work of Maslow's Hierarchy of Needs. And so Maslow's Hierarchy of Needs, a lot of us are familiar with that. The apex of the triangle is self-actualization. And we, we you know, have often taught about that. You know, if, if there's a disaster zone and we have no water and no food and no shelter, you know, I'm not going to be working on you know, personal self-actualization. But this person pointed out to me that the Maslow actually spent a huge amount of time with the Blackfoot Nation. And it actually his model came from an adaptation of his exploration of the Blackfoot Nation. And actually, the Blackfoot Nation's triangle, the basis, personal self-actualization, because the ones above it are actually societal actualization or community actualization, and then community perpetuation or legacy, I suppose we might think of. So I think that's really interesting for us in the modern world that you know we have a model which, in a sense, in some ways, maps onto the sort of colonial history that a lot of, you know, in a sense, often white nations, but not exclusively so, manifested. So I think being aware of the indigenous knowledge that's there, I think is really important. And I think the work that I'm beginning to do now and becoming more aware of in terms of psychedelic work, acknowledging that the psychedelic work and the work and the research that I do is not me discovering psychedelics that work for post-traumatic stress disorder, because we have indigenous cultures that have used psychedelics for centuries, including here on the island of Ireland. And so I think it's being very conscious of the cultural heritage that we have on the island of Ireland. I'm from an Ulster Scots background. But again, we see that there, there was legacy there of the suppression of language. Um, we see there was suppression of music. We, You know, I remember... In my lifetime, I know you're going to say you don't look that old, but I remember in my lifetime in London, going to London, and there were places that still had signs that said, no blacks, no Irish, no dog. Wow. So, you know, it's not that long ago. The answer to your question ultimately is that I'm prepared to be aware of it. I'm prepared to look at it. I think that's difficult because I think McKittrick and authors wrote a book called Lost Lives, which brought together a collection of the data and information about all those who had lost their lives during the Troubles. And one of the quotes that they have at the start of that starts off with the statement, sectarianism lives in all of us. And it does. I was born into the Troubles. And so we had that, you know, there was the culture and the language of other. That was a, that was an other set of people out there. And so that's a, that's been a very important journey of my life and my awareness in regards to that. I think likewise, the other area that there was a big area for me was the sense of, for me, I've always been a, a spiritual person, which has been very important to me. But again, part of that journey for me growing up, and I don't particularly like labels, but my experience of that in regards to my own journey around my sexuality was a sense of, initially it was something that was broken. Essentially, it was something which had to be fixed. And so now I'm quite happy 
in terms of who I am and with my own journey. But again, I see the trauma that came through that and the sense of people saying that this fitted, that didn't fit, this was wrong, and you have to be like this. Right. And and I think as somebody who can identify as a pan person, that from my point of view, the importance is about the intimacy of it, but it's also having the awareness that we are constantly learning from other people. Because I really, a statement you know, my supervisees will have heard me say is labels are for jars. I don't like labels, but equally how people make a journey and, and explore and discover themselves, but also come together as community and tribe. Sometimes labels and names are important. So I think it's about embracing all of those things, being a constant learner, being very quick to admit we don't know, uh, we don't understand. And I think that's then when we begin to look back, we don't make the mistakes of saying, I have discovered. Like on Facebook recently, there was a, a Nigerian man who, who posted as a bit of a, a teaching point around colonialism. And he, he posted, Nigerian traveler discovers lake in central England. And, you know, and he's called it and it's some wonderful Nigerian name for it. But it's just to put those sorts of things across. And I think that what we know and what we learn from our indigenous cultures, from our sense of our body, mind, spirit, from different traditions, from different ways that people experience the world, I think is really important because ultimately the importance, I think, is in our own story and owning our own story. Because I see it in patients who are DID or patients with who've been given a label of schizophrenia. They, they come with a sense of feeling something inherently is wrong with them. But often, what I like to try and do is to empower them by saying, but that has got you this far. You may not want to continue with that understanding of yourself, but it has helped you to get to where you are. And I'm reminded that in the whenever we look at the family, the manager family of psychiatrists, we had two brothers who were on opposite ends of spectrum around diagnostic labels. So we had on the one end, William Manager, and on the other end, Carl Manager. One of the statements that Carl had was which again is quoted by Helen Spandler, she talks about, I've used the image of a fish caught in a hook. Its gyrations may look peculiar to other fish that don't understand the problem, but its gyrations are not its problem. Indeed, they're an attempt to adapt to its problem. And as every good fisherman knows, sometimes that might be effective. And I think when we look at it, that's AIP. Beautiful. It's beautifully AIP. Because the thing is, when we see the wrestling and the, the presentations that people have, it's not the problem, it's a consequence of the problem. And I think that's why for me, the trauma model is so much more utility, but it allows us to not have to have, you're broken and you're not, you know, you're good, you're not. And it allows a much, yeah, I think humble is the right term. It allows a much more humble way of engaging with individuals and helping them to journey towards healing as they define it, which may not be what we traditionally defined it as. That's a good point. I was a military brat. My dad was career army and we moved around a lot, but we mainly spent most of his career in the deep South. When you grow up and you start reading history or you learn it in school or and beyond school and you watch movies or you read books and you learn about, you know, you touched on this earlier about how mostly white people in a colonialism way, try to just sort of wipe out indigenous people wherever they go. And you're like, wow, I just, you know, you think about that. And I know that that happened hundreds of years ago, or maybe a hundred years ago, not, not too far back in the future, back in the history, but you're just appalled that you would just take people who had their own language or their own music or their own customs and say, well, no, you can't do that anymore. Now you have to do it like we want you to do it. And Oh, it just, I know it happened and I know it was a history thing, but it just blows my mind that it, that it happened. And it's just so tragic that We've done that to each other as a society. You know, we just think, well, my way is the right way. So you guys just fall in line and do what we say. It's just sad. Do you think that's why it's important, Kim, that that we we are acknowledging that there is a, you know, there is a, a whole range of people's lived experience out there. And I think if if we try and stay in the place of of learners, I think that does that's a big part of it. You know, that we don't ever sit in a position where we tell ourselves, I know everything about this you know because i think that's where the danger comes in yeah agreed paul do you have a favorite free emdr related resource you would suggest either for the public or other emdr therapists well we're trying to in terms of 
in terms of our own sort of the Mirabilis Health Institute webpage, we're we're trying to put up some more videos on YouTube. I've not been brilliant at doing YouTube, but we've we've produced a few YouTubes to try and really inform people. I think that there are a, a number of people out there with really excellent teaching, and I think most of them provide some free elements. I think as an as a researcher, though, I think one of the one of my favorites as a researcher. Because I think it's really hard to stay across all the research. And it's like Andrew Leeds is just an exemplar and how he pulls together all the publications and stuff. So I think if I had to pick a favorite, I'll say Andrew Leeds's free resources and, and how he curates. I mean, it's just an amazing service for the whole EMDR community. And it's, you know, I think we should be totally indebted to him for doing that. So, yeah, I'll, I'll yeah. say that one. Uh, absolutely. Thank you. What would you like people outside of the EMDR community to know about EMDR and complex trauma? I think I'd love people outside the EMDR community to to see that to see that we're not trying to take over. We're very much that EMDR is something that is very collaborative to, to help people to understand how it can and should have a role in complex cases because complex cases need complex answers. And I think. So if there was like a simple thing, if it was being really reductionist about it, I'd want people to understand that there's a meaningful neurobiology to how the BLS work and that it's not just pixie dust that we add to things to make it look better. That there, It actually does something and there are published studies which show this. So I think because that's the bit that seems weirdest and non-EMDR people, I think that's probably my better answer that, I think I would want non-EMDR people to understand there is a literature there. It's not just pixie dust that yeah. the BLS is an agent of change. Yeah. We have the science and research to <laughs> prove it. Yeah. <laughs> if you weren't an EMDR therapist, what would you be? Ooh, if I wasn't an EMDR therapist, what would I be? I think at this stage, one of my my sort of favorite sort of mental health protection is I'm a bookbinder and I specialize in in medieval bookbinding and I enjoy repairing books. I make journals for friends and stuff and I bind some books for people. But I think if I wasn't an EMDR therapist and I could be anything, I'd probably be a bookbinder at this stage. I like it. I'm a book nerd, so I'm okay with that. I like that. I like that idea. But you have other careers to fall back on in case the bookbinding thing doesn't work in out. In case the bookbinding doesn't yeah. work out, you've got a few yeah. other <laughs> You've got other things. <laughs> Paul, is there anything else you'd like to add? The only additional thing I would add would be one of the reasons that I may train back, as I say, around 1997. The reason that I stayed within the EMDR community and why it's become such an important group of people to me was the mentoring and the the love and the kindness that I experienced within that community. And so I think it is with sadness that I see some lack of kindness sometimes. And I think, you know, obviously when Francine passed, there's always going to be, you know, a new storming and norming in our communities. And that's understandable. But it does sadden me when I see a lack of kindness sometimes when that is unnecessary. Uh, I can't remember who the quote is by but I see it often and I know Derek Farrell has it in his email tagline and it's in a world where you can be anything, be kind. And I think that's probably the best point to finish on. That is an excellent way to finish the podcast. Thank you, Paul, for being here today. No problem, Kim. Thank you for the opportunity. This has been the Let's Talk EMDR podcast with our guest, Dr. Paul Miller, who's at www.emdria.org. For more information about EMDR therapy or to use our Find an EMDR Therapist directory with more than 14,000 therapists available. Our award-winning blog, Focal Point, offers information on EMDR and is an open resource. Thank you for listening.